0: Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas in stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium and in any genre. In so doing, we hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew frames that conversation through nine simple yet powerful questions that sit at the foundations of all thoughtful human discourse. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, hello, all you bookish types. Welcome back to Bibliophiles. I am your host, Ian Andrews, joined as ever by all of the denizens of the Center for Lit universe, Adam. Hello. Hello. Missy. Hi. Megan. Hello. And Emily. Hi there. How are you guys doing today? Great. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. How about you? Oh, my goodness. I had the distinct joy today of helping my younger brother Aaron uh, move some furniture, which really was just a smokescreen for getting to hang out with his young son. Oh, you got to
1: see baby John. (laughs) He's chuckling
0: and giggling. He's kicking and snorting and moving. It is pretty fun. (laughs)
1: Did he laugh for you?
0: He did. There was there was a chuckle or two.
1: That is so funny. <laughs> pretty
0: grand, pretty grand. So it's been a grand day around here. Um, hey, I have a question for you all. Are you ready? Uh, yeah. Yes. yes. If you if you had to choose a single fictional home to visit for a meal, which home would it be? What meal of the day would it be? And who is your host? Oh, Bilbo
2: Baggins, eleven's East Hobbiton. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Moving on.
1: <laughs> uh, I was going to say I want to go to Babette's Feast.
0: <laughs> Babette's oh, Feast. Good answer. Oh, That's a good one. I don't know. That seems really existential. Like, I would have to consider my own place in the universe and stuff in order to enjoy that meal. I don't know. I don't know if I can handle
3: that. <laughs> I would go to any uh, any house of a Charles Dickens character where there are oysters beforehand and punch afterwards. <laughs> 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 Fezziwig. Mm-hmm. That sounds Cossy very weird, atmospheric, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: but also yucky. <laughs> also yucky. I,
3: know. <laughs> I think the reason I, I would like to do it is because it sounds so gross, but everybody in the book seems to love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so maybe you would also love it then, huh? That and right. yeah.
0: figgy
2: pudding. It seems like they're always
0: figgy eating that too. Figgy pudding. <laughs> <sighs> figgy pudding. Gross. Emily, what about you?
4: I went to have a picnic on the riverbank with Mole and Ratty.
3: With Matt and Rad and oh, Mole. Of course delightful. you do. With yes. Matt and Roly. With Matt and <laughs> Roly. <Rollie. laughs> With a roly
0: poly ratty. (laughs) So I am so proud of myself right now because I thought ahead. I thought I'm gonna go last. And so I can't use Hobbiton (laughs) and I can't use the riverbank. And so I'm I prepared a third option. Wow. Let's hear it. I want to have breakfast in the home of the black dwarves with Prince Caspian.
1: Oh, nice. You remember that scene? I love that idea. Truffle hunter.
4: Or um, breakfast at Almanzo's house, right? Farmer oh, boy.
0: That could be pretty
3: Farmer good. Boy. Yeah,
4: that's a good idea too. Mm-hmm.
3: Is breakfast with the black dwarves where the centaurs ate um, oatmeal mash and then drank tankards of beer? Yep. <laughs> that's exactly right. I get it. Sweet I th- Also,
0: I, I like to think that if I were actually in uh, Narnia, I would be a centaur.
3: <laughs> hey, you're half centaur right now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's so true. I am. I'm half centaur right now.
3: Frankly, I'm hairy enough that the other part's kind of centaur too.
0: <laughs> What's the other <laughs> one? Anyway, closer to Seder,
4: maybe.
0: yeah. <laughs> to well, that I did think about Tumnus. Like tea time at Tumnus's place would be pretty awesome.
2: <laughs> I just watched the episode in Parks and Rec where Jerry paints a, a portrait of Leslie as a centaur. I can't believe we're <laughs> oh, talking about it. Man, I
0: forgot <laughs> it's about that. So <laughs> hilarious.
3: That has no bearing on today's I question, know, Megan. That is really funny, though. <laughs> it has a little bit of
0: bearing bit, because, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because today we're talking about uh, the question: What is the image of God in man? Not to be confused with the previous episode, what manner of creature is man, although I do think the questions are related. This may be an extension of a little bit more theological nature than the previous question. So yeah, Leslie painted as a centaur. Maybe that's making statements about the image of God and man. Who knows? You'd have to ask Jerry. <laughs> you have to ask Jerry. Yeah. Jerry Gergage. <laughs> have to ask ask the showrunner whether that was supposed to be a comment on the image of God and man. <laughs> but
3: I'm really excited to hear your guys' thoughts on this question today. Does this question need defining? Uh, well, my, my first salvo across the bow on this question might, um, offer something by way of a, of a definition of it. Great. Shall I go ahead and hit fire? Hit it. Well, I thought that the, the current cultural expression of a debate on this question is best summarized by Android movies. Oh, Hmm. yes. And I think for a reason I want to explain That android movies, thoughtful ones, thoughtful android movies, actually drive at a discussion of the question of the image of God and man. But they do it in kind of a roundabout way. I'm thinking of, well, primarily Blade Runner. Mm. Right? 1982 movie starring Harrison Ford and directed by Ridley Scott, which is a movie adaptation of that famous Philip K. Dick short story. Uh, The long title has to do with androids and electric. Do
0: androids dream of electric sheep?
3: There it is. That's right. So Blade Runner is a movie version of that story, right? And it's, it's about a world where androids have gotten off the android plantation, so to speak, and are trying to preserve themselves in opposition to their human overlords. And in, in that way, it's a movie that has a lot of similarities with lots of other android movies on the big screen and the little screen. I mean, the, the recent uh, TV series Westworld also comes to mind, which sort of has some overlap, right? I can't certainly can't recommend Westworld because of all of its very objectionable content. There are lots of naked androids in Westworld, right. as it were. <laughs> but it's in the same category, right, of of this question of androids um, becoming self-interested to the point that they they act outside their rules. iRobot by Isaac Asimov has some of this going on in it too, right? They act outside their rules of programming, in order to preserve some sort of self-interest. And even in the in the climactic scenes of some of these movies, they come to a moment of self-knowledge and self-awareness. And in the context of the, like, like for instance, in Blade Runner, the main character, uh, Officer Decker, falls in love with an android. And this android, played by Sean Young, becomes a person. Or at least considers herself, thinks that she's a person. And the question of self-knowledge and self-awareness is the dividing line between android and human, or at least it forces the question, is this a robot or is this a human being? Right? And and so really it looks like an android movie is a great example of the question of what is a human being. But I think actually in the world of human art, it's also a question, what is the image of God? Because if we assume from the outset a Christian worldview that there is something called the image of God, and that man possesses this image in a unique way, then the question of what is God like, what and the image of God in man becomes inseparable from the question what makes a man a man. Hmm. See what I mean? Yeah, it makes so the sense. moment that an android becomes a human being, that's the moment where we look for the thing that is the image of God. And so the question is wide open in an Android movie. What is this thing? What is this thing that makes an Android human, which is also this thing that reflects the image of God if we're looking at things from a Christian perspective? Hmm. And I think there's a couple answers, if I could be permitted to just continue dominating the discussion. Please do. The one is uh, the ability to rationally interact with the world. Like reason, right? I think Aquinas even says it, that the rational soul is the imago dei, or it's the image of God in man. And so so reason is the image of God in man, maybe. But another possibility is this idea of self-awareness. I think um, Aquinas also says this, the self-thinking thought is a facet Ooh, I love of that. the image of God. Thinking about right? your thinking. The self-thinking thought. Yeah, thinking about your thinking right and i think um, i think android movies do a great job of of poking at us on this question hmm. when the android starts to think of himself thinking he's gone past his programming right. just a little bit and is now partaking in something real maybe even something spiritual something supernatural right the question of
0: whether or not this android has a soul becomes the a central plot point right becomes yeah. a driving
3: conflict right and then in what does that soul consist and what does that soul consist? And is it is it self knowledge, or is it the ability to, you know, to process rationally? Is it the ability to act from the mind and the intellect? What is it? And what's the combination? So anyway, what I think is watching Android movies uh, can has a philosophical dimension that it would do us good to to plumb. Maybe even the Terminator movies. Maybe the first Terminator. Movies. Maybe the first, maybe the early Terminator movies. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Hmm. So. There's my there's my f- contribution, and it t- to the definition of the question as well as as uh, my thoughts about it.
0: yeah, I love that. I think it's really great. I have especially haven't seen the ones that you mentioned, including Westworld. I agree that you can't wholeheartedly recommend it tread carefully, but it is maybe even more explicit than Blade Runner on this question. really eloquent and it puts the question aggressively to you as a viewer. well are they human or aren't they? And then when you, when you pass a verdict as the viewer, it looks at you and says, and where do you get off making that verdict? In other words, what is it about you as a creature that endows you with the power to make that decision? And so I think, yeah, it attacks the, it it attacks some foundational assumptions about what makes a human being a human being. Really interesting stuff. Really interesting stuff.
3: but But really, in order to make it relevant for this conversation, we have to force it into that question being a picture of the question, what is the image of God? Sort of, except that in, in the Westworld
0: application in particular, it has to do with a man who, has, who conceives of, kind of like in the Truman Show, conceives of himself as the creator. He's the one who built all these things. And he is watching his creations and the story and, and how humanity interacting with these androids that he's created affects them and changes them. And so, um, man as creator, God is central to the whole thing. He has made these androids in his own image. And so the image of God and the image of man get conflated and confused. Um, yeah, it's, I I think it's really Mm -hmm. good. Merits conversation for sure. Emily, you look like you're chewing down there.
4: Those thoughts are along the lines of what I've brought to the table. Um, and uh, before I talk about my example, I just I have been doing a lot of reading this year about this question, just because uh, I, I'm in a master's program, and this is kind of humane learning as the subject on the table, and so we've been reading through Gamble's great tradition, and kind of the resounding voice of these authors is that it is, in fact, human reason or intellectual virtue, which is what... Uh, distinguishes man from the animals and is the image of God in him. And I came across this passage in Erasmus, which I found a little disturbing. He says, he's encouraging parents to educate their children. He says, if your child were born with some physical defect, with, for instance, a cone-shaped head, a humpback, a club foot, or six fingers on each hand, how upset you would be and how ashamed to be called the father of a freak rather than of a human being. Can you remain insensitive, then, when your child's mind is deformed? It is a heartbreaking experience for parents when their recently born child proves to be an idiot or an imbecile. It is as though they have brought a monstrosity and not a human child into the world. And were it not for the restraining force of the law, they would destroy the creature."
0: Oh my word. Would
4: you blame nature for having denied intelligence to your child while you caused this to happen through your own negligence? In fact, an imbecile mind is better than an evil mind. So his his thrust here is that you wouldn't want your child to be born an imbecile, and so why would you neglect him? It, an evil mind is worse than an imbecile mind. But the kind of the subtext is that it's a monstrosity. When a child is unable to use his intellect, and
3: oh yeah, I see that. just
4: to be really serious for a second, I think this is a really dark side to the conversation on this issue. Is Erasmus unknowingly implying here? I, I don't. He may he may not even mean to say this, but kind of the implication is if a child is born without the ability to use their intellect, they are not born in the image of God, and I find that to be really disturbing. I agree
1: with I you. I think I think
3: that is a implication of what he's saying, Missy. I interrupted you. Go ahead. Well, it
1: was the first thought that I had. I'd actually written it down here myself. This, if it's true that rational thought is that, that the the thing that that is the image of God in man, then what do we do with the Down syndrome baby or with someone with autism? You know, or
0: just a dumb but, guy?
1: Yeah, I mean, really, it, are they not made in the image of God? And um, <laughs> what a horrible, what a horrible idea.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you.
1: I mean, it. we can go all kinds of dark places as a result of that, and people have, you know?
0: Yeah. Emily read that passage to me, and I immediately thought, man, I wish I had a ready-to-hand um, Luther insult oh, to yeah, throw totally. at Erasmus's memory right now. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> you sack of pig droppings. you. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <He> <laughs> says a lot of helpful lives. things as well. I'm not here to poop on Erasmus's <laughs> soul. But, um. <laughs> At, at any rate, I I don't want to like be the one here to say, yeah, let's throw like two thousand years of thinking down the toilet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it can't be right. Um, but I do wonder if we have to reconsider at least what we mean by reason, or or the light of reason. That's um, really
0: interesting. Say more about that. What do you What do you mean? Put the question more sharply.
4: Well, I wonder if we contract that to just mean the logical...
0: Rational thought. Rational
4: thought. And if and if maybe that is an enlightenment issue, and maybe, and like, just maybe a human confusion, you can hear Erasmus in the Renaissance. But if maybe the true light of reason in man encompasses more than just the conscious thinking mind.
3: Well, Aristotle would say that it does. Uh, sorry, Aquinas um, following Aristotle would say that it does. The rational soul for Aquinas is not just the um, the intellect, but also the will and the perfection of intellect is understanding and the perfection of will is love. And so there would be a, an ethical component to the image of God, even an ethical component to the rational soul that results in, in charity. And he would, he would include that in his definition, not only of the soul, but of rationality. So, you know, maybe that's, you know, that would, um, Keep us from having to jettison two thousand years of tradition.
4: <laughs> well, anyway, right? my contemporary example is this great book that I've been reading, and I'm actually not done with it, so I'm I'm treading into some dangerous territory, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I've had so much fun reading it. It is the Secret History by Donna Tart, um and it is completely engaging. I haven't had this much fun reading a book in a really long time. Wow. It, it's beautiful oh, prose and it's completely captivating. And you guys, I think it's because the atmosphere of it is so much like Brideshead Revisited.
2: Ooh, little Evelyn Law.
4: Yeah, it, it takes place in this um, East Coast University, fictional university. And so it has all the charm and atmosphere of the Ivy League schools. But within this school, there's an even more exclusive group of students who have been handpicked by a professor to study Greek. And the conditions are, if this professor hand chooses you, you can't sign up for his classes. He has to choose you. Then you have to drop all the other classes that you're taking at the school and only take his classes and the classes that he tells you to take. Um, and he becomes your advisor. So there's only like five or six of these students. They're a little clique. And they study with this professor. And his classroom is beautiful. He's, he's made it aesthetically pleasing, right? It's everything that you dream that uh, intellectual life would be like. He serves you everything tea. Everything you dream intellectual <laughs> life would be like. <laughs> well, you know, I think this Emily's is a pretty human attraction, right? Old books. <laughs> uh, he decorates his room with flowers. It's, it's magnificent and beautiful. And I'm going to... Not give away too much. Most of what I'm saying is discovered in the first couple of pages because it's also kind of a mystery story. But the basic idea here is that these students have fallen in love with studying Greek and they've fallen in love with just the intellectual pursuit of this academic life. But it's not really enough for them. They're not satisfied by just the study of it. As they read about the Greeks um, and uh, as they enjoy the aesthetic circumstances of the intellectual life, they want to actually experience life as the Greeks experienced it. And so they secretly, with the professor's permission, start exploring what it would be like to for example they get really into this idea of the bacchanalia and like the dionysian cults and like they want to experience this for themselves they're not content with just reading about it and eventually the result is we learn on the first page someone has died as a result of this awesome and so i think it's a really perhaps important book even for those who are interested in the intellectual and academic life there there is a danger in just pursuing knowledge for the sake of knowledge maybe
2: it's the ideas have consequences conversation all over again it reminds me actually and i haven't read this book so maybe i'm totally off but it reminds me of alfred hitchcock's rope a little bit where um it's a it's a cult of of personality around this professor and even he doesn't see how his influence over these young minds in an academic setting could could have far-reaching consequences that are you know fatal
4: well, and I just think it's interesting that what she seems to be saying is that the the rational mind is not enough. They're not satisfied with just the, the the knowledge that their hearts and their souls long for something else. And there's nothing really that's being offered to them to fill that besides what it is that the the content of what they're reading. It's not just intellectual, purely logical content. It, it has, depth to it, it has more dimensions than just the intellectual
0: So what is mm. what do you think this says about the image of God and man? What is what is Tart suggesting?
4: Well it's not it's not like the Androids where it's an example of a purely rational being but I do think that it demonstrates that the the human life requires more than that that we're not just computers. Mm-hmm. We can't just be reduced to knowledge machines or
0: well as even the character it seems like the characters themselves again i haven't read this either but it seems like the characters themselves demonstrate that by
3: yearning for more than just an intellectual pursuit exactly right Right. well even the androids too the androids in all my android movies are are supremely rational even before the moment when they try and push across the line into humanity into human existence right they're supercomputers and you could argue there's nothing as rational as that so there is, I would agree, I think that's that's sort of implicit in the in the going after the answer to this question. There's got to be something more than just the mind as a computer. question is, what is it? That is the question.
0: So <clears throat> These are some, some current modern examples, and there are there are many more, but maybe it's a fallacy, but I assume we'll get something closer to the right answer from back there. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> what did you guys find by way of classics? I mean, Aquinas has already come up. Erasmus just got pot-shotted at, which i have never opposed to, to be perfectly frank. Um, <laughs>
4: okay, I did not mean to open up an
0: Erasmus hate fest. <laughs> <laughs> what
3: do you guys think? What would you dig up, Dad? Oh, my turn? Yeah, your turn. Well, I I'm glad to get another crack at this because it's I'm I feel a little bit as though my first suggestion steered the conversation towards reason being the image of God in man, and and I actually, uh, in my looking at more classic literature, I think that's not not the best answer, and I actually think it's not even not even a complete answer, and maybe even an answer that 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 tends in the wrong direction. Um, and I was thinking about C.S. Lewis's great classic, Till We Have Faces, in this connection, which is the story of Orwell, the, the, the queen of the ancient fictional city of Gloom or country of Gloom, who, um, who spends all of her life in a, in a debate with the universe about the nature and existence of God. And whether, if there's a god, he has more in common with the priests of unget who are a, um, a tribe of, of priests of a cult of a, of a uh, earth deity, uh, whether he has more in common with the priests of unget the cult of unget or with the uh, philosophical ideas of her, her tutor, who's, who's known as the fox, who brings her up uh, in an Aristotelian, Platonic, Greek-style philosophical education. He's a Greek, Right. And so these two sets of of answers about the nature and existence of God, and therefore the image of God in man, are competing for her attention all this time throughout this wonderful story. It's a um, kind of a retelling of an ancient Greek myth, but the the philosophical question uh, is kind of independent of that. And she's a real dramatic character. She's a real um, vigorous protagonist, and she's after the answer to this question: what is, what are the gods like, and Are they like me? And in what way are they like me? And she wants the answer so bad it becomes clear over the course of the story, which I won't give away because I really want you to read it. Uh It becomes clear over the course of the story that what she wants the most is for the gods to be visible and understandable and predictable and rational. She wants the gods to live and work according to rules that A, they have communicated to her and B, are understandable to her, and C, that they always follow. And in other words, she wants the the gods to be in her own image, by which she means the image of human reason. She wants the the philosopher Fox to have described the gods correctly. Hmm. Actually, he's sort of an atheist. He says, if there are gods at all, they look just like you and me, but there aren't. What there really is is minds like you and me. She knows that he's wrong. She knows there are gods out there, but she's deathly afraid that they might not be rational. She's deathly afraid that the reason in her mind and heart might not be the image of God. It might just be her own image. And um, I don't know how much of this story to give away, but she comes to a realization that the gods are not, in fact, rational. Lewis says, puts in the mouth of the priest of Ungat, holy things are, are not light like water and not thin like water, but thick and dark like blood. Holy places really are dark places, meaning they're not rational. They're something else mm-hmm. altogether. Profoundly the image of God utter. is something less predictable, less uh, clear, less understandable, less rational. They do not hit you, first of all, in the mind, but in somewhere more profound. And it's such a glorious story because it ends with her getting a view, getting a glimpse of the actual gods, the actual God himself of the, of the town of Glom and, or this, the country of Glom. And what the God says to her in the end is, I love you. What he says to her in the end is, you are my very own and I'm going to give you a name and a face and an identity and a place with me but I'm not going to do it according to any rules that you've ever tried to follow. I'm not going to do it according to any principles that you've ever thought I acted by. I'm going to do it in a dark, a way that's thick and dark, like blood. And so Lewis in a, I managed to tell that story without giving it away. Yeah, You did. That was awesome. Wow. That's great. I think I'm going to quit for the day. (laughs) What she learns and what Lewis is trying to communicate to us in the end is that the image of, of God in man is more basic and more fundamental than reason. It's love. Mm-hmm. It's love. And, and I, I think he actually says something that's sort of non-Aristotelian, because I, mean, I mentioned a minute ago that Aristotle, not Aristotle, Aquinas, includes, includes this idea of love and charity in his definition of rationality. The rational soul includes the intellect and also the will, which which manifests itself in love. But Lewis comes along and does a, I don't know what you might call uh, a Protestant turn. An end around. And he says, the image of God in man is not the ability to love. It's the fitness to receive love. Because love in Till We Have Faces doesn't go Godward from a man in God's image or a woman in this case. It comes manward from the God of love. She, she actually takes on what they call a face in this story. She takes on an identity and, and takes on the image of God by receiving his love, not by giving it or demonstrating it or performing it.
2: That is beautiful.
3: So there's some very profound way in which man, you know, uniquely among all God's creatures, bears his image by receiving his love in a unique way.
1: And then, of course, the love that he would give to other people would be derivative.
3: Totally derivative, a reflection. I right? think
1: about the verse in, in the scriptures that says, they'll know we're Christians by our love for one another, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, love is of God, and anyone that loves is born of God and knows God, mm-hmm. right? That that really does make love central to someone born of
3: God. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the this idea of the image of God also contains that idea of self-knowledge that I was talking about with respect to the... Android movies, right? Mm-hmm. When an android realizes that he has a self-thinking thought, that's when he crosses the line into into humanness. And and Orwell, the the protagonist of this story, has a um, a self-thinking thought too. There's a moment at which she, in the words of the story, receives a face, receives an identity, knows herself uh, purely and truly, and it's as an object of divine love. She knows herself as beloved really. And um, so I think self-knowledge is really key to the image of God in man. God knows himself, right? Let us make man in our image. He has a conversation with himself. He sees himself and knows himself. And we bear that image in knowing ourselves as objects of, of his love. At least that's what Lewis would say. And I think I'm with Lewis.
0: Yeah, that's lovely.
3: Man, I'm usually with
0: Lewis. Goodness gracious.
3: Is that classic enough? That's only the 1960 something or 50 something.
0: I'd hazard a guess to yeah. say that We Have faces will be red if it's not already a classic. Yeah, it's definitely. It would be one. Well, the test
1: is fifty years, right?
3: Well, I don't know. So it's they more say than fifty years. They say a hundred. Given the time <laughs> continues to roll on. <laughs> I had somebody say to me once that the hundred year rule applies to the novels of Ernest Hemingway. They're not classics yet. Oh my because gosh! Been really? Yeah. I think we're six years in or six years away from um, (laughs) having to have that question, that uh, debate again. Right. They weren't classics based on the hundred year rule five years ago, but now they're 100 years old. So now what? Yeah. Now what
0: are you going to do? What they're going to do is move the deadline. It's got to be 150 years now. (laughs) Pretty soon we're going to measure a classic book written by an American alcoholic by whether it's been around since the dawn of the American Republic or something like that. (laughs) Well, Emily, what about you? Uh, you? You dug into some classic examples as well, I think.
4: <laughs> well, I tried, but <laughs> the truth is that
0: your mom already used War
4: and Peace, and we can't use War and Peace for everything. But we
2: can use it sometimes.
0: If you're reading War and Peace, you can't read anything else. You don't have time. <laughs> exactly. Slash you can't
2: think of anything else because it's too awesome. That's what that I, I would say. Then
4: like sidebar Anna Karenina, but I always use Anna Karenina in bibliophiles, and so I looked for something else. And the result is I also didn't choose anything very old, but I did choose something very clear. Mm. And that is Madeline Langle's A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, yeah. Um,
0: I love that. Tell me more. Well, Ooh. it's so
4: great because it's a children's story. And so it's not very complex, but you can't miss it. The villain of the story is a disembodied brain who uh, takes over a planet and uses its rationality to organize it so that there is no discomfort and no violence or no disagreement on the planet. And so everything biological standards should go perfectly. And instead, on this planet, it is a totalitarian regime in which everyone is suffering and no one is happy.
0: Because no deviance is allowed.
4: Right. So when the Murray family shows up on the planet and Meg's little brother Charles Wallace is taken into captivity by it, the giant brain, Meg is told that in order to fight it, she's going to have to find in herself the thing that it doesn't have in order to get him back, and after much struggle, she finds out that what she has for Charles Wallace that it doesn't have is love for him.
0: Just in case lingo could ever be accused of subtlety, it doesn't have a heart, being only a brain. Yeah, <laughs> she does have a heart, being a human. Oh well, yeah, <laughs> it's gorgeous. I just think it's so it's pretty. So oh my
3: god, I love that. Story.
4: I just one of the phrases I've come up again in my studies. I see is um, a lot of the scholars have defined this ability, this reasonable ability. Maybe this is along Aristotelian lines, but they say that um, human intellectual virtue is being able to see what is that it is. And if that's true, then I think that that actually holds up because even if it is a given thing, um, and it, it is a given thing, the, the human ability to see uh, isn't just, uh, that doesn't just come from the mind. There's a reality that isn't just intellectual. We have to take in all the elements of reality. And there's an emotional reality and a spiritual reality. And those things are often felt with the heart and the soul mm. and
1: mm. not the mind. I think it's interesting mm. that even mm. the um, the secular world is beginning to acknowledge that, talking about things like emotional IQ Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Everybody's talking about how important an emotional IQ is to, uh, to success in relationships and in the world these days. I
2: thought you were going to talk about self-care and how all of the language that we're using to talk about taking care of ourselves these days is a little more ooey gooey every time you look. <laughs> no. Oh,
1: well, no, that's also true. I was just thinking about the fact that to even talk about what you're talking about, Emily, they still have to use the idea of IQ. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. It yeah. really is.
1: Love is really a foreign word, isn't it? Mm.
3: Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, that
0: makes me think. I don't know what this has to do with the discussion. So, sidebar, mom, what do you think about the enneagram in that connection? Ooh, I was yeah. just going to talk
1: about the enneagram. the enneagram. It's funny that you'd say that. Dad came home from uh, getting together with friends last night with an enneagram test. That oh, did you? Oh, use. you've got the
0: book. Oh my goodness. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Well, well, here we he's go. Ready to
1: take it, and I have to admit <laughs> that though I have, for those um, of you listeners, a... mom just rolled her eyes. <laughs> oh, they I were
0: rolling around a lot. I did not roll my office. eyes. You
1: did. What I have to say is that although I have read about Enneagrams before, I resist them because in some way, I think the Enneagram test is dehumanizing. It makes of men and women types Mm. and then neatly boxes you up and doesn't seem to doesn't seem to acknowledge anything beyond these particular
3: categories. Um, or at least you could say it involves us in a one and many problem. It right? does.
1: It does. The, the whole individual element, um, the multifaceted nature of an individual human soul is kind of left out of that equation, I think. I mean, I have to say, I have not looked deeply into it because I had a visceral response to it, as you can probably tell. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea what you're
3: talking about. I've
0: never heard of you viscerally responding to anything. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Why do you ask, Ian?
0: Well, because Emily and I have, so a lot of our, I mean, it's, um, I I don't know that it's targeted at our generation, but let's say our generation has a lot of fun with it and makes a lot of use of it. And it's, it runs around in, in me and Emily's circles a lot. The Enneagram conversation has happened, um, I won't say an interminable number of times because that conveys some frustration I don't necessarily feel all the way, but it happens a lot. And most recently we were both encouraged to take an actual test and figure out what Enneagram types we were rather than just reading descriptions on the site and guessing. And the results were actually kind of interesting and a little, a little compelling and a little convicting actually. ah, interesting. Because they accurately in a lot of ways described knee jerk emotional responses that I'm not speaking for Emily, but that I have to stuff. And, and it sort of gave me a, a position from which to think about my thinking, watch myself responding to things and, um, I don't know, it's, it was at the very least extremely interesting and not at all fluffy and internet fatty as I assumed it. Might well, yeah.
4: Be. I mean, one way to think about it is it, it debases your personhood. I'm sure there are people who have treated it like that. However, the other way that it made me feel is, oh, you're not as unique as you think you are. (laughs) Ah, Interesting. Which is such a
3: relief sometimes. There are, yeah, there are two sides to the one and many problem, right? I mean, the, some people say, sure, I'm glad that I'm leaning on the one side. And other people say, yeah, a little many would do me just fine. I mean, I I see what you
0: mean. I don't want to be a mystery to myself and others. I'd rather be someone that's understandable.
3: (laughs) But the, the idea that, that uh, this whole Enneagram thing is a, is a species of self-directed thinking, Yeah. Thinking about thinking is certainly makes it overlap with what we're talking about. Hard to imagine a horse having an Enneagram profile.
0: No matter how many names we give our pets. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking while while you guys were talking, I love the example of um, Madeline Lengel. That's so good. I I want to read that book again. It's beautiful stuff. Um, But I was thinking that, so in the last episode, I asked you guys the question um, to, to fill in the blank. Man is the blank. Animal, right? The thinking animal or the feeling animal, etc. Um, and I, don't, I can't, I can't reduce it down to one word. But I was thinking uh, over the break about about Beowulf and about the Anglo Saxons, uh, the poetic tradition there more broadly. And it seems to me the answer that they would have to that question. And we've talked before about how it's steeped in theology. The answer they would have to that question is man was, man is for the lordship vassal relationship. Like that's he was built for that. He finds his fullest um, satisfaction, his deepest security in that kind of relationship. This is why we ask for a king always. And this is why we are primed to accept an eternal king that, that rules forever, right? And so I think that applies to this conversation because the image of God, um, if it is to be found in man, is likewise structured. He's He is he is a relational god and so we are relational creatures um in the instinct to look around and into the world and and understand yourself in next to up up against and next to other people always is evidence of that i think so maybe man is the relational creature Mm, i like that rather than the the rational creature yeah
3: what about the objection to that that all kinds of other animals uh, live in packs and live in what you know what the scientists call societies. That's the communal creature, though. When I say
0: relational, I mean um, an independent, will-oriented decision to exist in relationship on an individual level.
1: You can look at, um, if you look at ornithology, there are some birds that mate for life, right?
0: Okay, but... I mean, we could probably disprove it. The farther down Mom, we go, we could Mom drill a long way see down. I, mean, mean. <laughs> I was watching an interesting video the other day um, about an Australian bird that's the most dangerous bird on the earth, called the uh, the the caraway, the caraway. I don't remember what it's. Anyway, it's this giant freaking bird. It looks like a, an ostrich and has a beak this long. It's super sharp and it will peck your heart out. Okay. Oh, my word! They're goodness. extremely goodness. aggressive. And there haven't been chicks born for a long time because they're so pugnacious, these birds. They like to fight so much that they don't get along with each other. And so their breed is dying off of the earth. Oh,
1: oh, wow. And there's an
0: Australian zoo that's trying to mate them. And they were really stoked to find that these two birds actually liked each other. And there's going to be some chicks now here in a minute. Why we're striving to um, <laughs> to retain such a species is beyond me, right? But here's the point I was trying to make. that If we drill down far enough, we can find something to contradict everything everything. Here's what happens in this particular bird society. Um, the woman who's much, much larger than the man dominates the man into mating. Once conception has taken place, she incubates the eggs and delivers the eggs. And then he sits on them for 90 days <laughs> and she leaves never to see him again. <laughs> and he raises the babies. Take off. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> I guess the point I'm trying to make is my point stands despite the fact that you can find evidence of bird culture contradicting (laughs) what I was saying. (laughs) Thank you. I often think
4: that animals are God's way of like, like showing us caricatures of ourselves. (laughs) <laughs> and oh, 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 that, yeah. like that the different situations that they embody they're all i don't know they're, they're funny representations of like th- that story <laughs> that you just told about the birds is funny to us because we immediately because are thinking about are. it in human terms mm-hmm. yeah but it, it is different there's no denying it's different i'm thinking about jack london's to build a fire and the dog and the man in that story, and the dog stays with the man, and and we all know that dogs are man's best friend, and they love us, right? Except for they love us because we feed them, and we take care of them, and as soon as the man dies, that dog is out of there. He's ultimately out to preserve his own life. The selfless act is ultimately when you, you scratch beneath the surface. It really is only something that human beings are capable of.
3: So the relational creature, the relational, the relational creature, maybe the selfless yeah, animal. I know. The yeah, selfless like selfless, animal.
2: even better. It's that's the, the specific element of being relational that human beings have over animals.
3: I was reading uh GK Chesterton's, the everlasting man recently, which is his popular apologetic delivered in response to uh HG Wells on evolutionary history. And he's describing the, the, the problem of, Paleolithic cave drawings—the
0: problem of I didn't know there was such a problem.
3: (laughs) Well, it's not a problem for Chesterton, but the way he describes it is a big problem for those who would blur the line between man and the animals and raise the question of the image of God in man and and uh, and try and uh, uh, obfuscate it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Because Chesterton says it's not the character of the cave drawings that makes an argument; it's the fact of the cave drawings. The fact that prehistoric man, whatever he looked like in terms of his bone structure or the fineness of his skull or his features, made art on the wall of his cave. This wasn't the beginning of some long development or the end of some long development. It was man in the fullest sense, fully formed, doing what only man can do, make art. Hmm. And as soon as you show me evidence that a monkey ever made art, then I'll back down from this argument. But man, and maybe, maybe even the image of God in man is the artistic animal. The maker. He's the maker. Which is, which is so beautiful because we talk about art and
0: whether art is good all the time. And one of the things we harp on is the more didactic a work of art, the less good it is, the less it is art actually. And it's not that sermons aren't good and that lectures aren't good, but they aren't art. There's something else. And so Uh, The fact that man as the maker being the image of God, right? Our little sub-creative instinct um, proving that we're in the image of God separates it from the moral question just a hair, which Mm -hmm. I think might be important given the fact that we're all moral disasters. Right. (laughs) So I pray that's not the image of God in man. Otherwise, I look very ungodly.
4: (laughs) I read a recent passage. I think it was from Joseph Pieper. Um, I read this passage in which he was saying that all art... The, the act itself at its core, it's an affirmation of reality. It's a, it's a loving, it's, it's an affirmation that one loves what is. Even if what you're saying is that I, I don't like what is, that is a sign of yearning for what is. Mm-hmm. And um, even if you're saying the most nihilistic thing, even if it's the most... Uh, debased work of art, even the act of making it, even the form of it is participating in something that's real or true about the world. So I think that the two kind of go together in his estimation that the artistic act is also in its way, an act of love.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that very much.
1: I wonder if that makes reading an act of love, because in order to engage with with an author, if what they've done is an act of love, then, um, receiving a story or a work of art, listening carefully, following it to its conclusion, not strip mining it or abusing it in order to weaponize it to further your own end game or something like that. It seems like good reading would also be an act of love.
3: Oh yeah, for sure. That was the gist of that Alan Jacobs book we investigated a little while ago. Um, uh, right, right. Right. What's the name of a that book? Theology of reading, it's called by Alan Jacobs. And the subtitle is The Hermeneutics of Love.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a go beautiful book.
3: Get this book, folks. Yeah. It's beautiful. Really good thoughts.
0: So I guess to round it out here, um, like I did in our last episode, how do you personally answer the question? What's your knee jerk? Um, we've heard the testimony of some great artists. Um, what do you what do you say to answer this question? Megan, you're in the hot seat, ready, go.
2: Well, I was just thinking back over everybody's everybody's answers that they brought to the table today and I think my favorite one is the one from Until We Have Faces. I identify with that one the most that to be made in the image of God is to be made to receive love and I feel like being a human being is an exercise in receiving love again and again and remembering sooner every experience that your identity comes from outside of you.
0: That's gorgeous. I don't think I can answer it any better than that. Mama, what do you think?
1: I, I agree with Megan. I the idea that the image of God has to have something to do with love really resonates. I think about that verse from the love chapter in Corinthians. If I speak with tongues of angels and I have not love, I am a resounding symbol and a clanging gong. That um, love itself is central to anything humane, mm. and so all of the the examples that you gave today that that locate real humanity, which is truly marked by the image of God, I think the ones that resonate are the ones that talk about love.
0: Well, you guys, thank you for your, for your insights. This has been a really fun episode. I cannot wait to get back together and do it again as we trek through the, the great universal questions. Also, you listeners, we don't have any kind of a corner on what the great universal questions are. We really did just sit down and go, I don't know, how many of these can we think of? (laughs) So (laughs) if you you see an aspect of this conversation that we are missing, uh, a question that you would particularly like to hear us answer in some sort of a future episode, please do write in. We would love to Mm -hmm. hear from you. So in any case, thank you to each of the four of (laughs) you for your thoughts. And until we meet again here on the air and in person, happy happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Thank you for tuning in. We're so glad you joined us, and we would love to hear your thoughts on this and any other topic that strikes your fancy. You can join the conversation by visiting the show notes, where we've stashed a link to our Bibliophiles Facebook page, a favorite haunt of the Andrews types and other listeners like you. Hope to see you next week as we tackle the question, what is a good life? Until then, happy reading, friends.